Our sermon this morning is from Daniel chapter 1. So turn there in your Bibles. If you're using a P-Bible, you can find Daniel chapter 1 on page 690. So turn there. Uh, new, new book starts this morning. We're going we're gonna to spend about 12 weeks uh, in the book of Daniel. Um, 12 chapters. We're going to try to hit a chapter uh, a week. The, uh, we're, taking, we're pressing pause from our series in the book of Romans just yeah, to work our way through this, and then we'll pick it back up in the fall. That's the, kind of the, the, uh, the vision that we, that we try to you know, actualize in the preaching ministry of the church here um, is, first of all, um, expositional preaching. So uh, on any given sermon, we're going to read a passage of Scripture, and then we're going to take some time to think about what it means and how it applies to our lives. You might occasionally hear a sermon on a, a topic or something like that, but for the most part, we try to work our way through passages of, of Scripture. And the idea behind that is that um, God has spoken in His Word, and so we want to let Him speak to us as we kind of open it and read it together. We don't, we don't gather to hear me or anyone else speak. We gather to, let, to hear, hear God speak through his, through his word. Now, so expositional sermons, uh, we usually kind of, uh, w- for the most part, we work our way through books of the Bible, kind of start to finish. Um, occasionally, we'll kind of, you know, go through different passages that, that aren't, you know, necessarily one, one straight through one book. But for the most part, we preach expositionally, and for the most part, those expositional sermons form, uh, you know, sermon series that work through books of the Bible. Because, same thing, we uh, understand God to have spoken through his word, and so rather than, well, well, we'll do this passage here because we like it, and then we'll skip way over here and do this passage here because we like that one, which is fine. I mean, all scripture is, is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, but um, we find that if we work our way through entire books of the Bible systematically, then we find ourselves being exposed to verses or passages or themes that we wouldn't have otherwise, uh, you know, been drawn to. And so it's helpful. It's helpful to kind of let the Lord speak to us on, on his terms uh, through books of the, the Bible. So next question you might be asking is, how do we decide what books we preach through? Glad you asked, because um, we, so, so the vision there is that uh, the Bible is this kind of big compendium, as it were, this big amalgamation of a bunch of different books that were written uh, across various centuries um, by dozens of different authors. Uh, and so there, there's the Old Testament, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. And then within those two testaments, there's a number of different genres, the law, the history, the prophets, uh, gospels, letters, apocalyptic literature. So there's a bunch of different um, genres. And so the vision is as we preach through individual passages and as we work through books of the Bible, we want to kind of help you have a balanced diet of different genres of the Bible from the Old and New Testament over, the, over a relatively, you know, um, short period of time, right? We don't want someone to have to attend James River for 20 years before they hear something from the Old Testament or the New Testament or before they hear something from one of Paul's letters versus a gospel. You know? So a year, two, three years, we want to be able, we want someone to attend here for, you know, a reasonable amount of time and be able to kind of be exposed to different genres, different kinds of, um, of books of the, the Bible. Now, even within that, um, we, uh, in terms of the length of any given sermon series, um, what, what we find is that, um, you know, once you, once you get past, say, five or ten, upwards of 15 weeks, it can start to get a little 
monotonous. It can start to get a little repetitive. And so, you know, kind of like you have to switch up your your dog's dog food just so they don't get bored of it, right? We have to, you know, uh, so, so after, after about 5, 10, 12 weeks, uh, once a sermon series starts to get past that, we think, all right, um, maybe we can either condense it and try to do it within 10 weeks or so, or let's break it up and let's, let's kind of do some different things along the, along the way. And so, um, and then even, so, so, so whenever we look to preach the book, that's one thing we're thinking is like, okay, can we fit this entire book in uh, a, a chunk of time that people will be able to hear it and, and receive it and be blessed by it without it kind of getting too long. And if not, then let's break it up into different ch- sections and things like that, which is also going to affect the pacing. You might have also noticed that um, sometimes we preach through books quickly and sometimes we preach through books slowly. Sometimes we uh, just go through every single word on every single line of every single page of every single book uh, and sometimes we kind of uh, zip through uh, books more, uh, more quickly. Now, we do that on purpose because, um, so, this is, this, is, I'll let you, this is an insider baseball. So, not, so not only, when we preach uh, here this morning, it, one, you probably are well aware of one goal of what, the, of what the preaching event is, which is to expose God's word to you and teach you from God's word, right? We all, that's, that, you know, but there's a long con going on in the background you don't even know about, which is part of what we're doing in the preaching ministry is not just teaching you from God's word in any given moment, that's the main thing, but the other thing is teaching you how to study God's word on your own. Right? As we, as we read and study God's Word and as we cons- you know, consider what it means and how it applies to our lives, that's, that's just what Christians do when, when they read the Bible uh, in their, on their own, at their homes, throughout, throughout the week. And so, um, you know, it's, it is, it, for you as a Christian walking with God, it is, you need to know how to just chew through large chunks of Scripture you need to you need to be to have the skill set to be able to read the book of Isaiah in two weeks, which is a which is it's a big book and that's a lot and it's gonna you know you kind of have to work your way through it. But that's a skill that Christians need to know. How can I read large portions of Scripture quickly, just kind of chew through them and get the big broad? But another skill that Christians need to have is you know how can I sit and meditate on how can I read Luke nineteen ten right for the Son of Man keep, came to seek and save the lost over and over and over, a dozen times, a hundred times, meditate on it, right? And then list out pages worth of implications that, are, that I can tease out from that one verse, right? It's a different skill set, right? Reading through passages quickly and slowly. And so, again, so what I've been trying to do, what we try to do here is to, is to show you both of those through the preaching ministry of the church. Sometimes we, you know, cover big, long books very quickly, Sometimes we cover short passages and we kind of go, we inch our way through them very slowly. Now, again, the reason why we see the preaching ministry of the church not only as teaching you, but also showing you how to learn and, and uh, dive into God's word on your own is because we're Protestants. And that's a, that's a Protestant principle, is that like uh, the, the, the doctrine called the priesthood of all believers, all of us here own Bibles, or we, we can, or we, we should, and all of us have the ability to study God's Word and to interpret it and to apply it to our lives. No one here has to come to the church, uh, you know, and no one here is, is you know, completely 
uh, bereft of, of God's word unless they come here and get it from a special person who's gotten some special dispensation that can give it, right? Like we all have Bibles and we study God's word and we learn it to, together. And so that's kind of the, a, a brief kind of overview of how we understand the preaching ministry at this church. Uh, expository preaching or expositional preaching, working through books of the Bible, uh, a, you know, a balanced diet with different varieties of genres, Old Testament, New Testament, different uh, speeds and kind of rates at which we work through them. That's all kind of baked into like how we understand God's Word and how we want to learn from it and, and be, benefit from it. So, we're working through Romans. It's going to be probably a two-year venture, uh, you know, about 60 uh, sermons or so. And so we're going to take a break from that and work through. We haven't been, to a, we haven't been through a prophet in a while. So we're going to, we're going to look at the, the prophet Daniel for the next couple of, of months and work through uh, this book. Daniel is an amazing book. Uh, one, one commentator calls Daniel the, the keyhole um, of biblical prophecy. And so the, the, the book that unlocks all of the biblical prophetic interpretation throughout the rest of the whole Bible. He argues that if you master Daniel, then you can master the whole Bible. If you master right, the prophecy, all of the prophecy in all of the Bible, the book of Revelation, right, the, all of human history right, on into eternity, that you, if, if you master Daniel, you kind of unlock all of, of, of that. So... It's a, it's a tall order, and it's tough sledding. Daniel is not an easy book to just open uh, and read in some parts of it and just kind of interpret right away. So we're going you know, to have to work through it together, learn together, figure it out together. But that's the goal over the next few months. Daniel was written by Daniel. Um, he refers to himself in the first person quite a bit throughout the book, so we know that Daniel was written by, by Daniel. It describes several of the experiences of Daniel and his contemporaries when they are in uh, captivity, in exile, in Babylon. If you'll remember, we studied uh, First and Second Kings over the course of the last few years. Second Kings, toward the end of the book, uh, Babylon comes in and besieges Jerusalem and kind of deports everyone and takes them out into captivity in Babylon. That is, Daniel was, part of, was one of those people that was brought into captivity, into Babylon, Babylon, and so he's kind of writing about his experiences there. Babylon, um, like Assyria before them, um, yeah, was just this huge, uh, you know, muscle-flexing empire that would go and kind of take over places, um, Jer- Jerusalem, you know, Judah being, being one of them. When they would do that, they would, they would kind of uh, just bust into the city, they would, um, you know, Anyone who's, who's kind of violently opposing them, they would, would kill them or they would, you know, yeah, make sure that they are sufficiently marginalized. They would take all of the valuables, most of which uh, in the ancient world were in the temple, right? In the ancient world, everyone kind of understood um, their kind of local people group to kind of be under the umbrella, under the authority of their local god, their deity. And they, were, they worshiped that god in their temple. And so when, when nations would clash, they would see it as uh, not just the clashing of nations, but the clashing of the gods that those nations serve. So if Babylon comes in and takes over Jerusalem, then eff- effectively what Babylon is thinking is, not just we're bigger and stronger than you, though that's true, but also our God is bigger and stronger than your God. And so they would, would kind of come in and take all of their uh, valuables out of the temple. They would take the king and they would 
publicly humiliate him, mutilate him, kill him, to kind of send this message to everyone, don't stand up to us, right? We are in charge. Your best bet to live is just to, to go, go with the flow, right? Don't, don't push back against our taking you over. Just go with it. And um, Babel, so like, I mean, some, some civilizations, Assyria being one of them, were even more ruthless where they would just, you know, kill everyone, salt in the ground, kind of burn all, you know, they would just really do, do, you know, do a number on the places. Babylon at least tried to say, you know, the the idea was, uh, we'll kill you if we have to, but uh, we would be better off and you would be better off if we could integrate you into our empire and deprogram you from from who you are, kind of control, alt, delete, right? Like reformat the heart, make you you know, deprogram you from what you were as an Israelite or whatever, a citizen of your nation, and reprogram you as, as a, 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 you know, a citizen of, of Babylon. And so that was kind of what they would do. And part of that would be they would separate husbands from wives, fathers from children, send ever into all these different reaches of the empire and kind of get them plugged in there, learn a new language, new customs, new religion, new beliefs, new philosophies, new literature, all of this stuff. And, all the, you know, after a few years, you're just completely... Uh, you've been yeah, brainwashed into being a part of the, the Babylonian uh, empire. Daniel was, th- that they were doing that to Daniel and, and to other people like him. And so Daniel was one of these men that they brought into, um, into the royal uh, court to be educated and trained and Babylonized, as, as, it, as it were. And so the, the book of Daniel is kind of his story um, about, about that. And... Uh, that, so, so the book of Daniel then is a story of how Daniel went through that experience, but also how he lived and thrived and managed to flourish spiritually in that circumstance that, you know, if you're thinking that would not be very conducive to thriving spiritually and worshiping God, you're right. That was a really hard, you know, to, to be brought into a pagan nation that doesn't worship God and to be, you know, where they're actively trying to indoctrinate you and say, you don't worship God anymore, you worship our gods now. To live in that space and to be faithful to worship God in that space is not an easy task. And Dan- that's exactly what Daniel was, was doing. And so the book of Daniel in a lot of ways, is this, uh, you know, it's, it's instructive for Christians to know how to walk with God and, and to thrive in our relationship with God, even in the context of intense suffering, even in the context of intense persecution from a world that is radically opposed to God and radically resentful of the people of God. If you, if you, if you live in that space or have ever lived in that space or, or feel as if you live in that space and still want to walk with God, then Daniel is a book for you to read to kind of learn how to, how to make, that, make, make that happen. The book of Daniel does, like that guy said, right, the, the keyhole of prophecy, right? The book of Daniel does tell us a lot about the course of human history, much of which was going to take place after Daniel was written. So it's very, uh, it's very interesting and, and fascinating to see how he writes about future events. Um, and it does tell us a lot about the end times and about eschatology and the return of Jesus. All of that's true. But I would argue that more than that, the book of Daniel um, is, is, yeah, is, is a, a book for Christians who are suffering and being persecuted, a book for them to read and internalize and, and just learn how to operate and thrive and flourish in that, in that space. So, yeah, by all means, use it to fill out your rapture chart. But... 
Uh, but, but if that's all you use the book of Daniel for, then I think you're missing a big part of it, which is uh, to help Christians walk with God and thrive spiritually even when they're suffering and even when they are being uh, persecuted. Now, um, big question that, that scholars will ask when they look at the book of Daniel is when was it written? Um, which is kind of tied to the one we already answered, which was who wrote it, um, right? Daniel, uh, you know, identify, you know, he, he refers to himself in the first person throughout it, and so it, it purports to be written by Daniel. But a lot of people, most of whom I, you know, who, who I think are, are wrong, um, would say Daniel could not have been written in the 6th century BC. It could not have been written during the Babylonian captivity because it refers to all of these civilizations and all of these historical events that are going to happen after that space. They refers to things that happened in the second century BC, 400 years later. And so how could Daniel in the sixth century have known about things that were going to happen in the second century uh, all the way back then? So they will late date the book of Daniel until the second century. Um, now, uh, you know, the, the, it's kind of a catch-22 there because if you late date Daniel like that, you do get the book off the hook, right? Like you're, you're, you are able to explain some of the specific historical events that are referenced, much of which are in Daniel chapter 11, if, you want, if you're interested and want to do some homework. But you're able to kind of explain how Daniel can know some of these specific events because you're saying, oh, it just was written by someone in the second century who saw them with his own eyes. So you get, you get the book off the hook in that sense, but what you put it on the hook for is now the guy's lying. Right? Now the person who wrote Daniel... It's not Daniel in the 6th century. Now it's some other guy in the 2nd century who's writing, pretending to be Daniel in the 6th century, probably so that he can trick people into thinking that the book is more t- authoritative than it really is because it was written by someone back here you know, who had access to future... You know. And so, so I, I reject the idea that the book of Daniel was written in the 2nd century. If, uh, if it was, then it wasn't written by Daniel, and then the book itself just can't be... Betrayed. I find it far more plausible to say that um, the, book of, the book of Daniel was written by Daniel in the 6th century, like it says that it was, and any instances where that book refers to specific events that happened after Daniel was going to be dead is just God supernaturally revealing the future to Daniel, right? And there's, there's plenty in the book of Daniel, not just about things that were uh, future to him then and past to us now, like the 2nd century, but future to us now, right? The return of Jesus when he's going to come back and kind of institute his eternal uh, kingdom and his eternal reign. And so there's a lot, there's a lot of futureness that Daniel writes about um, in, in the 6th century. And so, so we're going we're gonna to read through it um, operating from the assumption that it was written by Daniel when Daniel was alive. Because that's when most people write things is when they're alive and not 400 years after they have, have died. So that's the author, that's the date, that's the circumstances, that's the, the setting, brief overview of the book of Daniel. This is where I want to just kind of flip through each chapter really quickly. Daniel chapter 1 we'll do today. Daniel and his friends kind of in this reprogramming school in Babylon. Daniel chapter 2, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream um, of this, of this uh, big uh, statue, this, this kind of uh, idol kind of thing that represents future human kingdoms. Daniel 3, story we're probably familiar with, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Daniel 4, another dream. Um, oh yeah, look at that. Um, Daniel 4, another dream this time about um, uh, like uh, a, a tree and, and these future kingdoms. Daniel uh, chapter 5 is a different king, no longer Nebuchadnezzar, now it's Belshazzar. 
uh, in a vision that he has, and then he, he dies shortly after the vision is interpreted for him. Daniel 6 uh, is Daniel in the lion's den, most probably a famous story that we're all familiar with. Daniel 7, another dream with, with four beasts. Uh, Daniel 8, another dream with two different animals. Daniel 9 is a prayer that Daniel prays for his people. Daniel 10 uh, is an angel comes and, and kind of tells Daniel about this heavenly conflict that's going on. Daniel 11 is a detailed vision of future earthly conflicts among nations. And then Daniel 12 is this promise from God about his final resurrection at the end of time. So uh, 12 chapters, we're going to try to cover one uh, a week for the next 12 weeks. But what's interesting, and that's kind of what this uh, thing is, um, is that uh, a lot of scholars uh, contend that the book of Daniel is, is written as, structured as what's called a, a chiasm. A chiasm is a, a literary device where you kind of structure, uh, you build parallelism into the structure of what you're saying to make it more poignant or more memorable um, or to draw attention to a particular point or themes. So the, the, the most rudimentary version of a chiasm is just A-B-A or A-B-B-A, right, or A-B-C-B-A, that, that kind of thing. So you can kind of see how it kind of goes down. There's parallelism between the top and the bottom as you get, right? You know, a chiasm would be when the tough gets going, wait, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. That's a chiasm. Or uh, if, you fail, if you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail. Right? These are chiasms. And so uh, commentators will say Daniel is one big chiasm, and you can kind of see it, right? Uh, Daniel and his friends are in exile in chapter 1. Uh, they, there's this vision of the return from exile in verses 10 to 12. Daniel uh, has this, uh, chapter 2, dream of four kingdoms, followed by God's eternal kingdom. 7 through 9, dreams of four kingdoms, followed by God's eternal kingdom. Daniel 3 and 6, Daniel's, Daniel, his friends are saved from the fiery furnace, and he is saved from the lion's den. Daniel 4 and 5, the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, uh, respectively. And so there's this chiasm, and when you see a chiasm like this in Scripture, it's usually pointing your attention to whatever's in the middle of it, or it's pointing your attention to themes that kind of work their way through it. So this chiastic structure of Daniel would basically argue that there are two main themes going on here. One is that uh, even though God has sent his people into exile because of their sin, he is still sovereign over everything. Every kingdom, every human kingdom that is or is going to come, God is sovereign over them. He knows them from the beginning. He's able to you know, work sovereignly through them to ensure that his ultimate final will which is that they are brought back from exile. So even though you're in exile, God is sovereign. He's going to save you from exile. That's kind of a big theme. And then, then the other one you can kind of see from where it kind of comes together in the middle uh, is that one big element of God's plan for when he saves his people from exile is that he's going to humble and judge and bring low the prideful people that are standing in opposition to him and to his people. God is going to save his people from exile, and as he does so, he is going to humiliate, humble, and bring low the people that are um, persecuting them and that are uh, exploiting them and, and oppressing them. Those are kind of the two big themes that you can see from this chiastic structure of the, the book of, of Daniel. So, that's the author, that's the date, that's the circumstances, that's the setting, that's the structure. That's our introduction. Now we can start the sermon itself. We'll start, we'll start now. Um, I'm kidding, we are going to go quickly because I, the, the, the beginning was a little bit long. So I'm going to pray first. We're going to read through Daniel 1 as we work our way through it. 
And, uh, and then, yeah, just consider what we have to learn from Daniel and his friends in their kind of uh, space of being uh, in, in Babylon here. So let's pray, and then we'll just pray, uh, pray and then we'll just read and, and uh, consider as we go. Lord Jesus, you are the sovereign king, and you have spoken to us. We thank you for your sovereignty, your authority, your glory, but we also thank you that you are a God who speaks to us, who cares about us, and who wants to um, take care of us and, and uh, ensure that even in the midst of suffering and persecution, that, that you uh, preserve us and provide for us. God, we, we pray that we could see you and your glory in your word this morning, and we pray that you would use it to encourage our souls and uh, help us to, to persevere together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That's exactly what we saw in 2 Kings chapter 24. Verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them into the land of Shinar, the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Right? So like I said, our God is bigger than your God. Right? What's the thing that kids say if, you know, if there's like a fight on the playground? Right? My dad can beat up your dad, right, or my, whatever. Right, our God is bigger than your God. We beat you, and that means that our God is bigger and stronger than you. And so we're going to take all of the valuables that you have given in offering to your God, we're going to steal them, we're going to put them into the temple of our God, and we're gonna, everything that you were, were once offering as a gift to your God is really indirectly now being, uh, you know, sent back to our God. You've been worshiping our God the whole time without even knowing it, because our God beat your God. And so this is bad for any nation who understands themselves to be a local people group under the authority of their local deity, but it's especially especially bad for Israel because they don't believe that their God is their little individual God like everyone else does. They're not polytheists that say, well, everyone has their own God and we have ours. The, the, The God of Israel says, no, there are no other gods. I am the only one. Every other God is fake. It's false. I am the God, not just of Israel, but I'm the God of the heavens and the earth and everyone, every single person, regardless of whether they're in Israel or outside of Israel, owes their life to me and their worship to me. And so when you see that God, who his presence and his glory dwelt in the temple that Solomon built, and all of these like fancy, valuable things that are in this temple that Solomon, when when another nation comes in and takes them all and takes them to their idolatrous temple, that, that really cuts you to the quick. And it makes you start to question, man, maybe God's promises uh, can't be, be trusted. Maybe God is not good. Maybe God does not keep his word. So this is a really um, unsettling, upending uh, moment in the, the lives and the hearts of the people of Israel. And then, but it's not just the, the treasures that they take uh, into the treasury, but it's also people. Verse 3, then the king commanded Ashpenaz his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish and of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, uh, and competent to stand in the king's palace, bring them and teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Chaldean is another word for Babylonian. So, 
Yeah, bring the, the best and the brightest that Israel has to offer and watch as I just wipe the slate clean and un-Israelize them and, and Babylonianize them, uh, right? I'm going to make, I'm going to take the best that you have to offer and make them into uh, the best that Babylon uh, has to kind of build up its legacy and its nation. Some scholars, uh, you know, I mean, it says his chief eunuch, that all of the males that served in the royal court, I mean, the, the way that, it's kind of icky, but the way that uh, the, you know, royal courts worked in the ancient world is uh, there was one guy in the palace that could, uh, you know, sleep with and procreate with all of the women, and that was the king. And so you're either a woman who, you know, he has access to you and to have children with you, or you're a male and they, you know, make you a eunuch so that you can't, right? The, the king didn't want to run the risk of there being any children born in the royal courts that weren't his, that didn't belong to, to him. And so all of the men that served both him and all of his wives and girlfriends were, were made eunuchs. And some scholars think that maybe this what they they did this with the the Hebrew uh, young men that they brought in as well. They kind of made them into to eunuchs as, as a way of dominating, right? Like, your line ends here. You either didn't have kids, or if you did, we probably shipped them somewhere else in the empire, and you'll never see them again, and now you can't have any more kids. We can. We can populate the earth with our image bearers as Babylonians, but you cannot because we have, have dominated uh, you. Verse 5, then the king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So even in the midst of this physical and psychological and cultural just, just domination and uh, torture, right, the king still says, but you can eat right, from all of, you know, all of the best food. Like, I eat the best food in the entire empire, I tax ever and heavily, and I use it to get the best food and the best wine, and you can have that with me. That's going to be part of your indoctrination, part of your training to be Babylonian, is that you're going to learn, we're going to, we're going to, you know, give you a taste for the finer things in life, the best food and the best wine that you could possibly uh, eat. And it says, verse 6, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. So these guys are from the same tribe that David and Solomon would come from, the same tribe that later Jesus would come from. The name Daniel means uh, God is my judge, right? I don't answer to other people, I answer to God. The name Hananiah means God has shown me favor. So God has treated me better than I deserve to be treated. The name Mishael means who uh, is like what God is. Who, who is like God, right? God is great and glorious and better than anyone and anything else. And the name Azariah means God has helped me. He's worked in my life and he's done things for me that I could not do for myself. So all four of these guys have names that are intended to uh, point your direction to God and, and you know, make much of God, speak highly of God. Verse 7, then the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, which means, uh, may the wife of the Babylonian god Bel protect the king. So your name was God is my judge. Now it is, uh, may one of these uh, you know, Babylonian gods protect the king of Babylon. Shadrach, right, his name was God has shown me favor. Now it means, who is like 
the god Aku, the Babylonian god Aku. Um, let's see, Azariah, his name did mean God has helped me. Now it means uh, I am the servant of the Babylonian god Nebo. I'm sorry, that's Abednego. Meshach uh, is the one who is, who's like God. His is who is like the Babylonian god Aku. And Abednego, servant of the Babylonian god Nebo. So, so all four of their names explicitly referred to the God of Israel, the God of the heavens and the earth, the, the one true God, and they've all been changed to names that explicitly point to these false deities that the Babylonians worship. And that's the name that they call, right, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That's the name that we're going to call you by is your new name that we have, you know, you no longer are part of your old family, your old country, your old religious practices. You no longer have your old name. Now you have names that honor our gods instead of names that honor your God. Verse 8, it says, And Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So Daniel, there's, there's been a lot up until this point that Daniel has acquiesced to. There's a lot that he has tolerated, a lot that he's put up with. There's a lot of hills that Daniel has chosen not to die on, right? I mean, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go with you, like, I'll go with you to this foreign land, I'll put on these clothes that you want me to wear, I'll speak with the accent that you want me to speak with, right? I'll even answer to the name that you want to address me by, I'll call my friends by the name that you want me to call them, them by, there are any number of opportunities that Daniel could have uh, chosen not to comply along the way, but he, he determined that I can obey, right? I can defer in these matters without sinning against God, right? I might prefer not to do X, Y, and Z, but I'm happy to, you know, lay down my preferences because it's just that, it's a preference, and I know who God is, and so if I have to wear these clothes, or if I have to, you know, speak in this accent, or if I have to kind of uh, become integrated into this particular, you know, culture, read these books, whatever it is, happy to do that. God hasn't told me that I'm not allowed to do those, those things. But if it's something that God has forbidden, if it's something that God has told me not to do, then I'm not going to do it. Even if, they're, even if they threaten me with violence, even if they threaten to take my life, I, right? it's not, if it's not just a matter of preference or custom, or this is the way I've always done things, or this is the way that I like to do things, or if it's not that, but if it's actually something that I cannot comply without violating God's word, I can be flexible up to a point because it's a matter of my own personal preferences and laying down my preferences but I can't cross this line because it, it's a function of what God has explicitly commanded me in his word, then, then, David says, or then Daniel says, no, I'm going to put my life and my health and my safety into God's hands. And if I, if I perish, I perish. In the ancient world, right, eating meat and drinking wine like this wasn't just a matter of like, oh, it's... It's better, or it's extravagant, or you know, it. Um, I don't know, right? Like it, it's like the, the the. It wasn't like Daniel had a problem with eating good food. It's that Daniel had a problem with uh, most most meat and drink that you would that you would get in the ancient world. 
had been sacrificed to idols. And so, so they would, would kill an animal, they would offer this animal as a sacrifice to a particular god, and then when they would sell you that meat and when you would eat it, the idea was you are like, like we exchanged this animal, we offered it to this idol in exchange for his blessing, in exchange for fertility, right? Fertile crops, rain, so that we can have food to eat next harvest season, and for t- right, children, so that, our, so that we can get pregnant and have healthy children, and so that our people can survive and, and advance. And so you offer, these meat, offer this meat to these idols, and then you sell the meat, and then people are basically ingesting the blessings of the idols that were exchanged, right? We'll give, we'll give this, this meat to this idol, he'll give us this blessing, and then when we eat the meat, we're taking that blessing in. It's going to make us more likely to have, again, healthy pregnancies and children. It's going to make us more likely to have uh, fruitful harvests in our, our fields. And so Daniel says, eating this food and drinking this wine is basically a way of saying, I believe in your God, I trust in your God. I'm asking your God to bless me. I'm receiving blessings and provision from your God. And he says, I can't do that. I can wear your clothes. I can, I can you know, read your books. Yeah, I can let you call me by the name you want to call me. I can travel with you to this other place, but I can't worship your God. If that's an issue, then you're just going to have to kill me. Because I can't do it. It's kind of exactly what what Jesus said, right? Uh, Jesus went through his whole life continually deferring, laying down his preferences and his desires and his personal needs, prioritizing other people's needs and desires above his own, right? So Jesus was flexible a lot of the time. Whenever he was able, happy to defer. But then... Right uh, at, at the end of the day, Jesus was here on a mission to die as a sacrifice for the sins of his people, and there was no flexibility in that. There was no, maybe I will, maybe I won't. That it was, no, I'm going to do it, or I'm going to, to die trying. Right? God called Jesus to die as a sacrifice, and Jesus did it without wavering, even when it cost him everything. And so, As we walk through our lives as believers, there's going to be any number of decisions to make. There's going to be any number of, okay, do I, is this something I can acquiesce to or not? Is this a hill that I need to die on or not? And Daniel shows us clearly that there are a lot, there's a lot of hills that you don't need to die on, and that's okay. It's, pro- it's probably... Uh, probably better for you to recognize those and to be humble and not die on every single hill. There's a, there's a lot of Christians that if they came into our church this morning, or the Christians throughout church history, if they came into our church, they would think that we have just totally compromised and just given ourselves over to just, you know, you know, they'd look at the way, I, they'd look at the way that you guys are dressed, let alone me, right? Flip-flops and shorts, just like, how dare you? Like, not wear your Sunday best, right, to come, right? Or, they'd, or they would look at the music that we play, guitars. They'd be like, you know what other kinds of music has guitars? Rock music, Satan, Satan's music. That's what has guitars, right? Amplification. What is this, Woodstock? Like a bunch of hippies, you know, 
right? There, there, there's a lot of Christians all throughout her church history that kind of have their particular convictions and their preferences and their hobby horse, and this is the hill that we're going to die on, and we can't compromise it, right? But there's a difference between the things, our preferences that we like and the, the commands that are explicit. There, there are Christians that would come in here and think, you guys all own your own Bibles in English? That is sacrilege, because it's, that's commonplace. You're, you're not supposed to translate the perfect, pure, unadulterated word of God from Latin, the, the language it wasn't written in, but the one that we like it in, right? You can't translate it from that into this like common language that everyone can, all these barbarians can just read on their own at home. So a lot of Christians with a lot of preferences, a lot of hills that they all want to die on, And Daniel says, I'm going to be flexible on a lot of those. I'm going to defer on a lot of those things. I'm going to lay down my pride on a lot of those things. But on matters of obedience to the word of God, commands of God, the worship of God, here I stand. I can do nothing else. If I perish, I perish. And so so there's going to be a lot of issues in your life where you might not want to, but if you're being honest, you can and probably should be flexible. And just kind of, you know, lay down your preferences and kind of kind of make it work. But there's also going to be a lot of issues where you must, you don't have a choice. You must take a stand. You must obey God's word rather than men. And even when the world is insisting that you go their way and threatening persecution if you don't, you, like Daniel, like Jesus, have to stand and say, nope, this, this far and no further. I cannot compromise on this particular conviction. And it says, Then he asked the chief of the eunuchs uh, to allow him not to defile himself. And so Jesus, or so Daniel, this is right, so, so not only does Daniel, uh, and not only is he flexible in all of these matters where he thinks I can be flexible, but he's also bold and firm on the matters where he is not able to be flexible. But even in his boldness, he's still polite and still kind. He asks the chief of the eunuchs not to, to allow him not to defile himself. And then verse 9, that politeness, that winsomeness that Daniel exhibits, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the people that were in charge of him. So, so be flexible where you can. Be faithful where you have to be faithful. But even in the midst of being faithful, be kind. Right? Be easy to love, easy to get along with, easy to, to lead. Daniel doesn't come and say, screw you, I'm not going to do it. Because I mean, what, what he's thinking is, yeah, if I die, I die. I can't, I can't disobey God, so if this means I die, then I'm going to die. And he's thinking that in his head, but what he leads with is, hey, can we work something out here? where I don't have to compromise my convictions, where you, you don't have to kill me, where, where you don't have to, because you know, what he's going to say in verse 9, right, uh, the, the, or verse 10, he says, listen, I fear the king who assigned your food and your drink. Why should, uh, why should he see me that you are in worse condition than the other youths of your own age? That would endanger my head. The, the guy says, if, I don't, if you don't eat this meat, then you're going to be this skinny, wiry, emaciated weakling instead of being a big, thick, strong, you know, uh, guy, and I'm going to get killed for it. Like, the king's going to say, hey, what have you been doing with all this fancy food I've been sending you? And I'm going to have to say, well, I threw it in the trash because he didn't want it, and he's going to cut my head off. So Daniel says, let's, let's figure something out 
that we that you know you don't have to get killed by the king i don't have to get killed by you i don't have to worship a false god and be killed by god like let's figure something out where we can kind of you know make this situation work and god gave daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the people that he was was there with Verse 11, he says, Then Daniel said to the steward, uh, the chief of the eunuchs who had been assigned over him, uh, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then let our appearance be compared with the other use who eat the king's food to be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. Right? Let's try it for ten days. If it doesn't work, if you think you're on a trajectory that's going to end with you getting your head chopped off, then you can kill me, you can do whatever you have to do, but let's at least try it. Let's see if the Lord does... Because like that, he would be... That would, not, that would not result in him being bigger and stronger, right? Like when you cut out protein out of your diet and only eat vegetables. There's a, there's a baseball player who did this. Um, t- 10, 10, 20 years ago, there's a baseball He was a big, strong guy, first baseman. They put everyone on first base that, you know, you know can't run. They're all the big, strong, heavy power hitters. You either play first base or designated hitter, and he was that. And he went vegan one year. And the next year, his, like, all of his numbers just dropped off. Like, batting average, home runs, everything. And the, the manager was like, I don't know. I can't get him to eat meat. And he's, like, he's killing our team because of it. The guy's eating tofu every day. So Daniel's saying, let us eat vegetables every day. And the guy's like, if we do, you're going you're gonna to look wiry and, and you know, spindly and, and emaciated. It's not going to be good. And he says, well, let's just try it. Let's, let's give God the opportunity to supernaturally intervene and find a way for us to remain faithful to our convictions and what God has commanded us to do, but also spare your life in front of the king and spare our lives in front of you. So let's try it out. Verse 14, so he listened to them. You think he would have listened to him if Daniel was just this, you know, this burr in his saddle? If, if he hated Daniel because he was obnoxious and every, at every turn he was just constantly kicking against him, you know, and making his life more difficult, you think he would have, you know, acquiesced and said, sure, let's try it. But he liked Daniel because Daniel was kind. Even when Daniel had to rebel against these orders, he did it with kindness and with grace and with, and he was winsome about it. And so he liked him. And so he listens to Daniel in this matter and he tested him for 10 days. Verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate all of the king's Food, and they took away everyone else's, or they took away their food, and they gave them uh, only water to drink and vegetables. So God has supernaturally shown up and provided and done a miracle and made Daniel bigger and stronger, despite uh, you know, despite having very few calories in his diet. He has somehow gotten bigger and stronger than all of these guys with more calories in their diet. Verse 17, and as for the four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom and understanding, then all the visions. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought him in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with him. And among all them, there was none, none was found like them, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding that he inquired of them, he found them to be ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Christians, so, so, yeah, so they say, test us, right? Uh, let us stand or fall based on whether God provides for us and works this miracle in our lives. But not only that, but then they say, and we are going to hustle. We're going to work hard. We're going to 
you know, we're going to be faithful to what you have called. Like, we're going to work as if we are working for the Lord and not for men. We're going to learn. We're going to, you know, strive. Christians aren't called to just be different than everyone else. Christians aren't called to just uh, not do the things that the world does. They're called to be better. They're called to be more faithful. Right? They're, they're called to be stand taller, be stronger. Right? If, you, if you're living and working to please other men, and that's it, then you'll cut corners where you can get away with it. But if you're living and working to please God and not men, then you will be faithful. You're not going to cut corners, right? And then you're going to stand before the world and they're going to see that you have run circles around, right? Run circles around the people that they are comparing you to. They're going to see that Christians are more faithful than their non-Christian counterparts. They're more rigorous, more righteous, right? If, and, and that's going to reflect on the character of God. If, God, if all of God's people were a bunch of cheaters and slackers and lazy complainers, then that reflects poorly on God. That makes God look bad. But if God's people are faithful and they're hard workers and they're excellent in everything that they do, then that makes God look good. It's our first glance at, uh, at the first chapter of the, the book of, of Daniel. This kind of letter to Christians, letter to the people of God who are living in, right, living under the oppressive thumb of a world that hates God and resents them, right? Uh, people who are, are suffering and being persecuted. And it's a book that says, here's how to be there. Here's how to live there. Here's how to thrive there. Here's what you, you need to, to do, right? Trust God that he is sovereign over everything, even over suffering and persecution. Be flexible when you can. Don't be needlessly combative and antagonistic all the time. But be faithful where God is calling you to be faithful and hold to your convictions, even if it means that you have to suffer for it. Be humble and kind and winsome. Love your neighbor be someone who is easy to love and then work hard and do a good job so that it reflects well on your, on your Father in heaven. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you for the book of Daniel. We thank you for the perspective that it gives us on how to persevere through suffering and persecution. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful and to hold fast to our convictions. We pray that you would help us to be humble and kind and others-centered. Lord, we pray that, um, that all of that would bring glory to Jesus, our King and our Savior, who has died for us to save us from our sin and to reconcile us to God. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.